NZ Aerosports, Icarus Canopies, now Gyro. That's right, we've rebranded, and Gyro is our next generation. It honours our founder, as that's the name we knew him by, but Gyro also marks the start of a new chapter. And not to be biased, but it's going to be fucking epic. Long story short, we're more us than ever. So if you're new to the sport, or even a Sky God Ninja Turtle, welcome. I think our valiant leader Lucy, Gyro's daughter, Says it best. And we still got that fuck your attitude. <laughs> Rebrand! Woo! Rebrand woo indeed, Lucy. Anyway, head over to gyro.com for more info and get amongst your legends. I was 19, broke, unemployed, and sold my girlfriend's canopy for drug money. So, I thought I'd better sell her a new one. What a sentence and what a story. This describes the humble yet outrageous beginnings of NZ Aerosports, the home of Icarus Canopies, in the words of our founder himself. From getting a paratrooper toy from his mom, watching parachutes at the DZ as a six-year-old, jumping off the wharf with a parachute made from bedsheets, doing his first jump at 16, sewing his first canopy on a borrowed machine at 19, and starting to sell parachutes out of a garage in 1986, Paul Gyro Martin had an undying love for the sky. Our company started with one man with the wildest of spirits in a true blue sky dream, a renegade. In the time that Gyro created and ran the Icarus Canopies brand until he passed away in 2017, he pushed everything he had to its limits. We miss him and we always will. Gyro is the next generation of NZ Aerosports. It honors our founder, of course, because it was the name we all knew him by, but Gyro the rebrand also marks the start of a new chapter, our next jump. Gyro is the space between sound and silence, art and science, chaos and calm. Gyro is a state of epic tranquility that transcends understanding. That moment, in the door, in free fall, mid-swoop, where nothing but the present exists. A perfect balance of euphoria and thrill. Gyro captures our passion for flying and our commitment to designing break-the-fucking-rules canopies that deliver pilots pure, wild flight. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Back in the, well, actually not back in the can, in the new can for the first ever interview on this particular, in this particular studio with a face that I've been chasing down for quite some time. Please, right to it. Who the fuck are you and what do you do? Uh, my name's Simeon Lott from England, living in California now, uh, and I'm a professional skydiver. Simeon Lott. Man, oh man, I have not actually talk to you face to face like this in how many years oh more than i care to remember it's fucking been a while right it has been a while i mean my lord i think you're and i you're in my association started i want to say in late 2003 maybe early 2004 it was early 2004 when i started at cross keys i left the army in march 2004 and came out for the season opener 
Oh, so, but we will, we won't get to, we'll actually get around to talking about cross keys for sure. But, um, was cross keys the same for you when you took the job? It was because it was a great job and a responsible choice. Uh, it was a party job zone and, uh, I just got out of the army to let my lack of hair down. You definitely did. And we will get to that. We had a lot of fun together at cross keys, but I want to, um, as I'm opening this bottle of wine to celebrate the fact that I finally got you on the podcast, um, I want you to start out by telling me, uh, not necessarily how you got started in skydiving, but how you got started in anything extreme. Okay. Um, well, with skydiving, I was, I guess my first thought that I wanted to do it, I was on an operational tour in Northern Ireland with the army and we were in a patrol base and the only video we had was point break, the original point break on a VHS tape. And so it got watched three times um, every day. And I just looked at it and thought, wow, one day I'm going to do that. And funny story, I'm actually personal friends with one of the stuntmen that, um, that was in that movie as well now, the, the legendary Jim Wallace. How crazy is that, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, we, the world works. you and I are the same generation of skydivers because I'm a point break in, and drop zone baby as well. I mean, both of those movies were pretty... Uh, pretty influential in getting me into the sport to start with, but especially Point Break. Yeah. So now, and then, uh, no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. So that piqued my interest, and then I was, um, we were had our battalion on parade for Princess Diana, hey. and our regiment's free fall team jumped into the parade and presented her with a cap batch, cap badge brooch of uh, precious stones, and I thought, oh, one day I'd love to try that, and. Um, a few years later, I managed to do a few static line jumps, and then I was getting out of the army, and I wanted to find out how to be a professional skydiver. And then during uh, a room inspection, my company commander saw the pictures on the wall, and I'd already handed in my 12 months' notice to leave the army, and he said that he could get me onto the freefall team if I signed back on. Now, I only had two weeks left of my 12 months' notice, so it was a big decision, and he needed to know by 4 o'clock. <laughs> so... I went into his office at five to four and um, went down to the admin office to sign back on, feeling sick as I signed the paperwork. And I ended up doing five years on the team in the end. So. <laughs> I fucking bet, man. You know, it's it's kind of funny. One of my, one of my favorite pictures of you from uh, obviously long before you and I knew each other is you guys on um, at standing at parade rest with Princess Diana walking past you. Oh, yeah, I still got that photo on my phone. That's a stunning picture, dude. It really is fantastic. And and because I, I knew you before you were old and gray like me, um, I, I spot you straight away. But it's also very funny, too, because I just had, and you might know him, I just had a, a gent by the name of Scotty Milne on not that long ago. Um, oh, yeah. Who's jumped a number of times and met the queen and met the king. And, and so you're the second UK jumper that has me one degree of separation from royalty, which is pretty fucking cool. <laughs> Oh, so I have to get you a certificate or something. Something like that. So there was no no wanting to do something like skydiving or doing anything extreme prior to the military, although ending up in Northern Ireland in the military was pretty extreme, I'm guessing. Uh, it wasn't too bad, mainly just getting soaking wet, freezing cold, and um, wading through streams and blackthorn hedges. <laughs> that sounds like an awful lot of fun. Yeah, but there'd been no uh, desire to do anything extreme. I'd always spent my childhood out in the woods and stuff like that. But um, yeah, well, I had no desire to be a wild man or anything. 
So now when you made the decision to sign back on to start your skydiving career in the military, what did the family think? They didn't mind so much. Um, my mom was upset when I first joined the army and then and I did 12 years in the end. Um, and then before I got out my 12 year point, my mom was asking if I was going to get like a regular job in an office close to home so she could spend time with me. And I left and two weeks later, I'm like, I'm off to the States to jump out of planes. So, <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine she wasn't too happy about that. Now, how did the uh, how did the the jump training go when you started out? I mean, obviously, the military's uh, uh, quite a bit different than civilian. Yeah, well, I was, I only did sport parachuting in the military, not any military jumping. So it was just geared towards being on a public display team. So I went through the category system, i.e., static line, and then I was based in Germany at a Joint Services Parachute Center uh, as a member of staff, and they built up my my jump numbers there. So I had enough to start display training when I go back to England. That's pretty fantastic. I mean, to have the the UK kind of foot the bill um, for what's been a, now a lifelong skydiving career. Oh, yeah. I reckon I've got, what now, 16,300 jumps. And <laughs> I, think I've, I think I've paid for less than 50 of them. You got to love that, right? Yeah. God, yeah. You really have to. I mean, well, and especially because both you and I have had the benefit of being able to travel around the world and, and make money doing this. So, I mean, who gets to do that? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you uh, still living the dream in San Diego these days. So when, when you were, you did the military training and, and you ended up on the team. So what was that like? I mean, um, was it a, a really uh, accelerated progression for you because you had signed back up specifically to train to jump? Uh, not really. I was just posted there. I was just another regular soldier at that point. Um, after I left Germany, I went. The team was based in Canterbury, England, in Howe Barracks, um, and then we would go to Scarlet Sebastian on the east coast of Florida for uh, the month of March every year, and because we had the winters off, and then we trained for the display routines, and we'd get uh, new members cycling through, so they had to learn it, uh, and then we'd come back do the summer display season in the UK. And then in the winter months, we would tend to be used as a, like a recruiting team. Nice. Well, now, but UK, I mean, skydiving in the UK is kind of challenging anyway, just weather-wise, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of my jumps were just from under 3,000 feet when I was in England. So yeah. by, by the time you headed to the States, uh, how long had you been jumping and what was your experience like? Um, let's see. I left in. So I've been eight years jumping. I had... Less than 1,300 jumps when I turned up at Cross Keys. Mm. Of those, and only about 80 were tandems, I think, and the rest were just training jumps and, and public displays. So you literally went straight from the military to Cross Keys in 2004. Well, I think 2001, I was in Skylife Sebastian, and my team, mem uh, team leader called me over I said, this is a guy called John Eddowes. You're jumping out of his airplanes. And I said, hi. And he said, he's got a drop zone in New Jersey. So I said, get a job. And he said, when do you leave the army? I said, three years. And he said, okay, come and find me in Cross Keys in three years and I'll hook you up. And he was true to his word. Man, oh, man. I mean, uh, and uh, uh, a tip of the cup to Mr. Eddowes, man. Uh, he was he was a character, to say the least. He definitely furthered both your and my career. So rest in peace to Mr. Eddowes. Rest in peace. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a, man. A good man. I liked him.
He was, he was, uh, um, well, and he was a proper shit stirrer, So it was always a good laugh. If you sat back and watched whatever the hell he got up to between him and Cruzy, it was nothing but endless amounts of, uh, hijinks. Oh, him, Cruzy and Rob Branch going out on the piss with those three was, uh, quite oh. an experience. Oh my God. I, so, I mean, this is about the time that you, well, it is the time that you and I met because I was new to, to cross keys at the same time as well. But unlike you, I took the job at Cross Keys because at the time it was pretty much the busiest drop zone in the U.S., if not in the world. Um, and it was the responsible choice because I could go out and make a whole lot of money. <laughs> the res- <laughs> yeah, the responsible choice. Yeah, I saw someone had a T-shirt there once. It said, skydive, cross keys, um, play all day, party all night. I pretty much think that sums it up. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, um the the two and a half or so years that I was there, I, I mean, it's some of it's very sharp and focused because they were such outrageous times, but a lot of it's just kind of fuzzy. Yeah. <laughs> I feel yeah. It was proper good time. So, um before you uh, had started skydiving, was there a plan for what you were going to be when you grew up before skydiving? Um I pretty much wanted to to take a line from the film um, Pulp Fiction, I pretty much just wanted to walk the earth. <laughs> oh, nice! And then write about it, like I don't know, be some sort of travel writer or nice. Just, just have adventures, pretty much. With a wallet that said "bad motherfucker" in your back pocket. Absolutely, yeah. Nice, nice. I like that. Well, I mean, you kind of have done that, though, right? I mean, uh, um, I don't think there's, uh, even though you you've been able to make a damn good living at it, it's kind of a vagabond lifestyle being a pro skydiver. Pretty true, yeah. Although I've had my roots in San Diego for the last eight years or so now, since yeah. I started working at Tac Air. Which, and we'll definitely get to that because that was a hell of a gig. I remember when you were talking about the potential to get that, and I was super stoked for you because I had flown very briefly for Buzz out there at Tac Air. Yeah, that was a good gig. I actually felt some grief when uh, when that contract went elsewhere. Yeah, well, and I mean, I never had any idea um, what kind of money there really was to be made outside of, um, you know, just being a tandem instructor and all that until I found out what some of these contractors were making for the government contracts that were out there. Holy shit. Oh, yeah. Nowadays, like, it's not uncommon to get $700 a day for, for some of the contracts, but... Man, what we had to do for anywhere close to $700 a day back in the day. Yeah. Yeah, um, fact, the, the wages weren't great, but you did a certain, uh, certainly did a huge amount of, of jumps to make it up. Well, that was the thing, right? Is I mean, uh, above and beyond anything else, Cross Keys was a was a cash cow. I mean, we made really good money when the weather was good because we just didn't stop. Yeah, no, yeah, they well, they often did two hundred tandems a day, just yep. normal days at all. So certainly kept busy. Oh, God, yes. I mean, well, what was the average? I think um, Saturdays and Sundays as a tandem instructor, you do 23 to 25 tandems a day. Oh, easy. How crazy is that? Yeah. I mean, looking back, seriously, how the fuck physically did we do that? Yeah, my back's still complaining about it, actually. (laughs) Everything on me complains about that shit. (laughs) So... You you took the gig in Cross Keys. You had briefly met John Eddowes, and I'm assuming you kind of had an idea of what you were in for when you got to Cross Keys, but uh, was there any realization that you were like, oh, this is a party drop zone? Uh, no, I didn't actually realize it that much until I got there. So, uh, But it was pretty apparent um, 
I'd been in the States, I think, two days. Now, let's say a friend of mine was in the States two days and um, someone wanted to go and buy some drugs from some some gang members in Camden. <laughs> oh my God. So my friend was given a, a handgun, asked if he knew how to use it, and then went along to this drug deal. <laughs> and uh, and then my friend thought, holy shit, is this life in the States? This is fucking crazy. It's, so, uh, well, it was life in Cross Keys, right? Cross Keys was just... I don't even know how to describe it because, I mean, uh, for lack of a better word, the 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 amount of time that we were in Cross Keys together, it was more like a commune than it was a drop zone, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. And we the fucking... evenings after sunset out in the woods and on the on the deck and stuff were, oh, were yeah. legendary. Well, and we never left each other's side. I mean, either we were jumping or we were on the back deck or we were in the swimming pool or we were in Philadelphia spending all our money. Yeah. Yeah, actually, remember the funny story. You'd um, had a hard opening, and <laughs> I think you seized, and then I'd hurt my back, and you gave me some powerful muscle relaxers and said, do not, whatever you do, do not have any alcohol with these. Now, I didn't know how to go a day without alcohol, so we went out to Philadelphia. I'd taken one of these muscle relaxers, and I think I'd got through half a pint before I was a pile of jelly on the floor. <laughs> and I think you and Norman had to carry me back to the parking lot, leave me in the back car, the, uh, the back seat of the car, and then you went out for the evening, and I, I hadn't moved by the time you got back. That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. I've actually told that story on the podcast a few times, and funny enough, it was Mark Norman's tandem that I was filming, and it was my stiletto that blew up. If you remember, uh, I uh, um, I pitched right after they uh, opened up over that uh, huge landing area, and two end cells in on the left side, I blew out the entire canopy top and bottom skin. Um, but it hit me so hard that uh, I left a grapefruit-sized bruise on my chest from where my chin hit my chest. Um, yeah, they but- were. They were not small cameras in those days, either. No, man, no. It just it uh, it absolutely almost ripped my head off. But we had, if you remember, we had that chiropractor that was a fun jumper. Um, yeah. He and I'll never forget this. He adjusted me then, like that morning. And now looking back on it, I'm like, I could have had a broken neck in this. <laughs> almost twisting my head off, but his wife was an MD and he called her up and said, Hey, one of my uh, jumper buddies hurt himself. And she phoned in a script of like a hundred Vicodin for me. And that was what I had given you. (laughs) Yeah. So I was off my tits for like uh, uh, 10 days on Vicodin trying to be able to turn my head to the, to the right side again. Can you reverse your truck into a pole because you couldn't turn your head to see out the back window? I did that same day. It was a really good day. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I had I had driven up to, and for anybody that's been to Cross Keys, uh, Cross Keys, the entrance to Cross Keys is down Dahlia Avenue, and it's a residential street. Like, it's just a neighborhood. You would never know that there's a skydiving facility down there. And at the very top of the street, because we were a creative bunch, was the house that we call Top House, because it was at the top of the street. And I forget why I went to Top House, but yeah, I couldn't turn my head to the right. So I couldn't turn my head over to look out the back window and I backed into a telephone pole. Oh, I remember the Top House. I had to live there for a while when I um, uh, I took a stripper on a tandem 
and then went out Philly that night and ended up shagging her at the drop zone later on. And the girl I was living with at the time seemed to get a little upset about that and kicked me out. And so I had to go and live at a top house with Frick and Craig. Oh, Mr. Cusky. Yeah. Oh, rest his soul as well. Rest his soul as well. Cheers to, to fucking Cusky. Yeah. Uh, my, my favorite Cusky story was, and you might remember this. I brought my daughter out to the drop zone. Um, and, and I think she was, she was only nine years old at the time. And Craig was a dirt bag. I mean, you would cross the street to not walk past this guy if you saw him out in public, but if you knew him, he was a sweetheart. He was just a dirt bag. Um, but I'll never forget. He met my daughter and he took a dollar bill out of his pocket and folded it into this really intricate ring for her and slid it on her finger. And my opinion of Cusky changed right then. I'm all, that's the sweetest fucking thing. Uh, I was just absolutely adorable. Absolutely adorable. Yeah. He was a nice man. Yeah. Oh, he was also introduced to me from Worthington by Worthington as the next guy that's going to go in at cross keys. Uh, Was he the next guy to go in? Yep. He pretty much was, I think. Yeah. The very next guy. Actually, I was. That morning, I think I'd woken up with a bottle of tequila at the top house. And so I had had a third of it. Craig and uh, the other guy there had had the other third. And then I went to see that chiropractor that you mentioned because I had disc injuries in my back. Mm. And when I came back to the drop zone, the news uh, trucks were there. And then um, that whole incident had happened. Yep. Yep. I, uh, I watched it all happen. Um, my buddy, Kevin love fucking rest in peace. Holy shit. We know a lot of dead people, dude. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So Kevin love was standing right next to me uh, when it happened. And then Damo, the Australian guy uh, was standing next to me and I watched him flip over from his back to his belly at treetop level. And then heard what sounded like a stick of dynamite go off. Cause he landed on that concrete driveway and hit the basketball hoop on the way down. Yeah. Oof. That was messy. Yeah. Didn't you give him CPR even though you knew it passed? I did because when I got to him, Toast was right there with him begging me to help do resuscitation. And so he was trying to do mouth to mouth. And I think I did two or three chest compressions and I could actually feel the concrete behind him. And yeah, grabbed toast and pulled toast away and said, no, no, no. And then I think I walked maybe 10 feet away and Selwyn was right there and I just lost it. Selwyn practically had to carry me back into the hangar because I was losing my shit. Wow. Yeah. But that was Cross Keys though, right? Because Cross Keys was this mix of the most incredibly fun, outrageously happy times and some really fucked up stuff. That's true. That's true. Well, like I said, I arrived for the season opener in 2004. So my welcome to the drop zone was the Paul Rafferty fire incident as well. So that was quite the eye. Rest in peace to Paul. Yeah. He's who hired me at the, for cross keys. Okay. Gotcha. Cross. That's the thing is when I look back at cross keys, it's such a, a mixed bag because I, you can't think of cross keys without thinking of fuck how many people that are gone now. True. I mean, we lost Stanley not that long ago and, and PJ and all these, all these crazy people that were part of this amazing team in that very short period of time that have, have passed on. That's true. And Sarah as well. That's another July 4th. 
Lost. Yeah, man. July 4th will forever be a tribute to Sarah and then, of course, Mr. Stanley. Yeah. Mimi. Mimi. Still, still makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> it still makes me laugh. So, but I mean, we did have a lot of really incredible stuff too on the jumping side of things, not just the party side. I mean, back then we did the unofficial world's record for the most tandems done in a day. You remember that day. I was not there that season. That was 2005. Oh, that's right. Um, you weren't there for 05. I wasn't there for 05. I'd come home to England and then got a job in the winter working for the post office, which I hated. And I'm like, oh, God, I need to go skydiving again. And found a job in New Zealand in Christchurch. So went out for the Southern Hemisphere summer. And um, and then I overstayed there. So I missed the the instructor allotment for the 2005 thing. But I came out 2006 and I've been in the States ever since. Which is phenomenal. I mean, it was that was one of the funniest things about being in Cross Keys as an American is I think I was one of what five Americans that worked there because we just got invaded by from the, around the whole world. Yeah, which was amazing. I mean, it was a uh, it was a constant influx of of Brits and South Africans and Kiwis and Australians, and I mean. Uh, especially the core group that we had, because it was it was you, it was Jacko, it was Kim Worthington, Mark Norman, Rob Stanley, um, John O'Gordon is the pilot. I mean, what a crew! Yeah, and some Brazilians as well, like the Rovnans were were there as well, I believe, at that time. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, and we had uh, um, uh, Peter and Paul, the two ridiculously tall instructors, and then yeah. Marietta. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't need to go there. <laughs> so after um, you're out of the military, you've done the party stuff, you survived cross keys. Um, you, you, I mean, you really kind of took it to a next level because to end up, especially working for TAC air is no joke. I mean, TAC air was some serious shit. Yeah. Well, I moved. Oh, let's see how it went. I'd gone back for the 2006 season, but then the, by that time, everyone had to have a corporation to get paid, but I wasn't uh, a U.S. citizen and I couldn't form one. So um, Edo's had just bought Skydive Sussex in North Jersey and they were being paid cash. So I got moved up there um, and ended up marrying the bartender from the, the, the biker bar at the edge of the landing area. Um so that was, I was there for six years. We divorced, and um, it was raining nonstop for, for I think this is like 2012 by this point. And then so I, I uh, moved over to California, started working at Skylift Paris, very serious job zone, no no hijinks there whatsoever. Yeah. But I've calmed down by this time. And then um, I was doing some military contracts with Canadian Special Forces at Paris, and a couple of the instructors there worked for TAC Air which were Greg Lund and Kai Wolf, get on very well with them. And they invited me to try out for TAC Air, which is um, for the Naval Special Warfare Parachute course yep. down in San Diego. And so I did that, uh, went through a shadow program. My mentor was Jay Stokes. Yeah. Uh, big name. He was my mentor. And then after several months of working part-time i was offered a full-time job there and then uh, and then i worked there for eight and a half years until the contract was lost yeah nice now you were working with uh was mike artiste there when you were working there no okay 
Because I, I don't know if he worked at uh, at Skydive San Diego or if he worked a military contract somewhere else. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not too. I'm not too familiar with that name. Well, when I uh, um when I flew um briefly for TAC Air, this would have been in twenty twenty. No, no, no. Maybe two thousand nine, two thousand and eight. Uh, I remember flying the night ops um for those guys looking down flying over otai lakes and they had one 50 gallon barrel with a couple of chunks of wood in it set on fire and fucking navy seals just bailing out the back like it was nothing and i think at the time i probably had i don't know nine thousand jumps looking out the door going these guys are fucking mental <laughs> it's, no it's pretty way. black out there yeah not time yeah, dude. I mean, that was that intimidating going out and I mean, knowing that you're training Navy SEALs. Um, I wouldn't say intimidating. It was exciting to do that sort of job, and I'd also really miss the military environment. Um, even to this day, I've been out what, 19 years, and I still have weekly dreams about being in the army. So it was nice to be back around that environment again. Well, I mean, there's something to be said for students that just do what you tell them to, right? Oh, highly motivated. I mean, at the time, it was the final part of the, um, what do you call it, um, SQT, or the SEAL qualification training. So they had to, they'd done 18 months of training. Um, we did most of the people out, and then they just had to pass out two graded exercises, and then they would graduate, get their tridents, and then go off to the team. So they were mega, mega motivated to um, to get through the course. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I remember it was, it was fun briefly flying there um, only because – I really enjoyed watching how regimented everything was and that everything just went like clockwork. I also loved the fact that as the pilot, once the last guy was out, I was not allowed to land until the last canopy was on the ground. So for me, it was very lazy flying. Yeah, true. Although later on, you had, they, we took off and landed at Brown and dropped into um, Montsor Dizzy or Escada San Diego is. Oh, did they shift it to Brown instead of Otay Lakes? They shifted it because they were only doing uh, tailgate aircraft after a certain time. When I first started there, it was all out of the orders, all out of the one drop zone, and then they shifted to tailgate after the AFF phase. I would have thought that uh, uh, the Browns field would have been problematic just because it's so close to the Mexico border. Well, yeah, we had to stay in between the Bravo airspaces for, for Tijuana and uh, Lindbergh. Mm. So we had a... a of airspace in which we operate. I got uh, I got yelled at on the descent at night because I'm flying VFR only, and it was uh, um, I don't it wasn't overcast, but it was close to it. And uh, um, ATC had me descending basically into clouds, and I got into an argument with ATC, going, "I can't keep going straight." And he's like, you can't turn. There's jets there, and I'm like, "So you're telling me to fly into clouds as a VFR pilot?" And he's like. Shit. <laughs> yeah. The mountains where you want to stay away from. Yeah. 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 That was uh well in Otai Lakes itself, the the airstrip at Otai Lakes is um at least when you first start there is a challenging little strip. But yeah, fun. That's I remember I went right seat for a flight with Cruzy flying and then um on the descent, which during daytime, but on the descent, he did quite the exciting descent. Uh, through the canyons coming back down to the airfield and uh yeah that was i was gripping the uh the side of the chair pretty hard at that point yeah for sure for sure well i mean luckily the otter is built for exactly that atmosphere 
Yeah. It really is. Yeah. You, by the way, you just reminded me, I think you are, if not one of, the very first person I ever took flying as a licensed pilot. You are the very first person. That's right. We went out for a flight in uh, 152, I believe. Yep. And yep. then we were circling over my girlfriend's house in Williamstown, and I told her to look up through the skylight, and that was us in the plane overhead. Yeah. That was uh, – um, that was – who were you dating? Was that Jory? Jory, yeah. Hi, Jory. Hey, just in case Hi, there's any chance you're listening. Yeah, I remember that vividly because I think the second person that I ever took was – Oh, what was her name? Um, you and I both dated her because I asked your permission to ask her out after you guys stopped dating. Allison. 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 I took Allison on a flying date and she threw up all over the airplane. <laughs> How funny. Man, I took, that ass. Yes. Yes. I flew her down to uh, to Cape May. She threw up in the airplane and then had to lay face down on the ramp in Cape May for about an hour and a half before we could fly back. <laughs> yeah. 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 So – and you can the contract ends in tack air um that's got to be a bit of a jolt too because i mean that that was a wonderful contract yeah and it always they they stayed at the same place since its inception in 2003 so everyone was just confident that the contract will be up for bid every every three to five years uh and tack air always got it because coronado is just down the road yeah um, so that was a bit of a shock when it went. I actually interviewed with a new company, Rampart, and they offered me a position. But the a lot of the training took place about an hour south of Fresno, a place. Um, well, I basically didn't want to spend that much time away from home, so I declined the offer and started doing tandems full time where I am now. Yeah, well, I mean, and no offense, but you don't want to be in Fresno. Yeah, uh, yeah, you don't want to be in Fresno. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember being really surprised when Tac Air didn't get the contract again, for sure. Yeah, it was a shock. And then, so we uh, we found out pretty much towards the end of the last course. And then we were having the graduation with the with the students. And um, the course director told the students that everyone sitting on the back was going to be out of the job in three days as well. And they were pretty shocked that it was, that it was going elsewhere. But Fucking hell, the- man. That's the world of contracts for the government. So, I mean, you know, it's kind of funny too because as skydivers, we get so used to uh, living a transitory lifestyle that uh, when you look back at it, an eight-year contract is lifetimes. I mean, that's that's epic. Yeah, I started in March 2014, I think, and I did every course and then until the until the end. That's awesome. Yeah. So, and when that ended, where where is it you're jumping now? Uh, Brownfield Airport, still still local. It's just a little, um, a smaller tandem operator. They do tandems only there, so that's that's all I've been doing. I've done like thirteen hundred in the last year or so. Jesus Christ, how many tandems total do you have? Uh, I hit ten thousand about two weeks ago. Ten thousand tandems, man. That's a how, how are you holding up physically? Uh, I have to see a chiropractor at least once a week to um, <laughs> try and sort my back pain out. But apart from that, not too bad. What is it? Compressed discs? Compressed discs from the army at the base of my spine. Yeah, I'd actually prolapsed one, so some of the material from the discs like had come out. That's the problems I had in two thousand and four when I had to stop jumping across keys. Mm. Um, so I have to, I have to nurse my back pretty much. You know, it's 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 funny because uh, especially the older dogs, we kind of get used to just dealing with it. I mean, I I deal with 
relatively chronic pain now um, from just years and years and years of abuse. And it sounds like you're the same as well. Um, there's a lot of people that listen to the podcast from a page on Facebook called the Beginner Skydiving Forum. Um, and I always try and get nuggets of advice for people that are just starting out, whether they're just learning to jump or whether they're getting experience and they want to to uh, um, start working in the sport. And one of the always the biggest pieces of advice that I try and give is to take care physically of yourself because you'll end up like you and me. <laughs> That's true. I think stretching every day before starting work as a young person, well, as any age, but if you do it when you're young, I think you'll help avoid muscular issues later on. Sure. Well, and you've also done something else that uh, um, has really helped your longevity, I'm sure, in the sport because you're a hardcore triathlete. Well, I wouldn't say hardcore. I've done I've done a bunch. Yeah, I started doing sprints in England when I was um, about 18, I think. Uh, and then when I came to the States, got back into it a little bit, slowly up the distances and um, did an Ironman California last year in Sacramento, which was the fourth one I'd started and the, the third one I finished. I actually DNF'd on my first attempt in uh, Coeur d'Alene. Well, I mean, but for those that don't know, what are the distances of an Ironman? Uh, it's a 2.4-mile open water swim, and then you come out, take off your wetsuit, get on the bike, do 112 miles on the bicycle. Pretty much feel like throwing the bike in the trash at the end of it because you never want to see that thing again, and then run a marathon. I mean, to DNF out of only one out of four Ironmans, that's pretty fucking impressive. Yeah, it was uh, it was extremely windy in Coeur d'Alene, and I bought a tri bike, which you, which you uh, you hunker forward makes you very aerodynamic. Because of the aforementioned disc injuries, my back had actually seized on the bike bike leg, and I got pulled off for missing a time cutoff at mile ninety one, I think. But I was so pleased to not have to continue with the race because I tremendous amount. It it really is incredibly painful, right? And I, it, uh, having done a few sprints. Um, and one um, half Ironman, um, the bike is the worst part by far for me to try and be aero over the bars. It's just incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah, I don't even bother anymore. I just, I've got a bike now where I sit up quite straight, so I have a lot of wind resistance. I never do, do, do them very quickly, but um, I just, just keep pedaling until it's finished. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of funny now because uh, I, I ride quite a bit, but I ride a fucking mountain bike sitting almost straight up and down, and it's infinitely more comfortable. Yeah, I've still got my tri bike downstairs, but it never gets used. Might have to sell that thing. But now your uh, uh, your better half destroys you in the, the triathlon field, does she not? She's very fit. She actually, um, she done some tries. She, she beat me by two hours in the last um, Ironman we did. And then back in June of this year, she did her first 100-mile uh, run. So this is in the mountains around Julian and Kumaka in uh, eastern San Diego County. So it took uh, just over 30 hours with 14,000 feet of elevation gain. Uh, no sleeping, no stopping. She'd stop at maid stations and feed and sometimes change her shoes or something. But, yeah, she's, she's incredible. A 30-hour run in at altitude. Yeah. That's fucking mental. Yeah, she's um she's quite hardcore. Uh, does she jump? She's done a few tandems, but she she's not like a jumper. That's kind of nice, isn't it? Yeah. 
It really, I mean, I don't, I, I've never really tried to break it down, but there's something about having a significant other that's not into the sport that's just kind of pleasant. <laughs> yeah, they're not around drop zone hanging around all day at work with you, which is, uh, which is a blessing. Well, you get stories to tell, right? I mean, if you're, if you're, and I, I've had a couple of uh, couples on the podcast, and it always blows me away that they can work together at the same drop zone and then go home and have fun and enjoy. And fuck off. There's <laughs> no way. I'm together, I think. It's nice to come home and having missed your, your loved one. Yeah. yeah. So, as as you've gone through more than ten thousand tandems, bless you. I can't believe you've done that. Uh, looking down the road, what's what's the plans for the future? Because we can't do this shit forever. Cannot do it forever. Actually, my plan was to uh, follow in your footsteps and become a pilot. Now, I started some flying before the pandemic hit. Um, was loving it. Got to. I mean, um, I was flying that brownfield solo to eight hours got to cross-country solo i went from here to french valley and back and mm. then stopped and i haven't got it i haven't got back into it again I, I need to get back into that so um that's definitely what i want to see again to and then go to more towards the corporate side rather than um try and reach atp i'm getting too old to become an atp now i wouldn't have long in the long in the job so. well it's a really fucking tall ladder and you start all the way at the bottom yeah I mean, that's actually one of the reasons that people had asked me when I decided to step away from flying full-time at Drop Zones when I when I left Scott of Dubai, um, are, are you going to go fly in the airlines now? Fuck no. Why would I wh- – why would you walk away from a gig like Scott of Dubai to go to a, what, $35,000, $40,000 a year gig living in a, out of a suitcase in Cleveland? Yeah, exactly. No. No. No, no, I, I couldn't, I couldn't fathom it. So corporate or, I mean, honestly, nowadays, even getting a really good drop zone gig where you're not getting the shit beat out of you and you're fly, flying a well-maintained aircraft is a great job. True. Although a lot of drop zones severely underpay the pilot, pilots because they, they say that they're getting paid in time. So um, you'd have to find one where you can actually pay the bills as well. Yeah, you know, I've I've had people ask if I'm done, done, and I say no. Now that I'm uh, living in Finland, uh, um, go figure. It's very difficult to find a lot of work when you don't speak either of the national languages. Um, so, so the option of having to pick up a, a summertime contract back in the states here and there is is always something that I think about. Um, but it's also nice when you've got all the qualifications and you've been flying a turbine as long as I have that the drop zones I'm calling for work are different than the drop zone somebody flying a 182 is calling. For sure, yeah. Yeah, nice, nice. Well, so in the immediate future, though, while you're still chucking drugs, you're going to try and get yourself uh, get yourself in the left seat and, and uh, build those hours? Yeah, that's the plan. I've just downloaded an online school and uh, get pre- get ready for the um, FAA knowledge test and all that sort of thing. So I want to get back into it. Nice. That's very awesome. busy at the moment. So I'm busy working, but as it starts to die off when the when the schools go back or the colleges go back, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna get back on that for sure. Nice. Well, and and now you're living in California, which just I believe you just survived the first almost hurricane to hit California in what thirty years. Oh God, it was awful. I mean, it was it was a little breezy and it rained a little bit where I was. It was <laughs> it was it was difficult to get through. Well, hey, that's end of the world kind of stuff for San Diego. <laughs> it is when you're driving in the rain. Californians have no idea how to drive in the rain, and they all just freak out and become complete lunatics. 
So. As opposed to the complete lunatics they are on dry pavement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fucking hell. So, hey, as uh, as I generally tend to get towards the end of a podcast, I like to ask um, my guests to give advice to two different groups of jumpers. Uh, advice to people that are just getting themselves into the sport and what they should be thinking about. And old fuckers like you and me that might be getting kind of burned out and wondering whether or not they should hang it up. Uh, what advice do you give to those two groups of people with skydiving? Uh, I think with the, 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 the newer group, and this has been said over and over and over again, but uh, don't be in a hurry to downsize canopies. Take your time, learn the canopy, get several, you know, a couple of hundred jumps on a certain size and then go down and, and just take it easy. Especially with watching all the new swoopers coming in on their like 80 square foot parachutes. Like do not be in a hurry to get there. You have to, you have to take it in baby steps. Otherwise yeah. you will find it bites you in the ass. Yeah. Without a doubt. Um, for the older, I mean, all, I haven't done any fun jumps in <laughs> Jesus 10 years or so. Um, so the older ones that are working in the, in the sport, I think maybe taking a vacation, if you want to take a vacation or just go somewhere for a weekend and just jump with some friends for fun and have it not be work. Yeah. will probably ignite a spark again for the, for the sport. I'd imagine. Well, but to have the kind of longevity that somebody like you has had doing tandems, you've got to take pleasure in your work, right? Because I loved doing tandems. At the end of the day, if you ask me what my favorite way to jump over all my jumps are, my favorite ones are all going to end up being tandems. Yeah, it's it, and I still remember how scared I was on my first jump as well, and I feel that fear in a lot of the students, so it's it can always be new and refreshing because you're feeding off someone else's emotions. So sure. I, I do like that part of it and especially how stoked they are at the end. And that, that's a good part of it. Actually, that reminds me of one thing from back in our days at cross keys. And I've talked about it on the podcast before I look back with a twinge of regret on some of the jumps because we had so much fucking fun doing those tandems that the student was just a prop that we used. And I'm thinking of one jump in particular with you in that outrageous pink jumpsuit and the furry pink <laughs> fedora with the fluffy brim. Yeah. It was a, it was a pink felt uh, pimp daddy hat with a fluffy trim and Cruzy had rigged it up so I could wear it on a jump. So the pink jumpsuit, when I left the army, I had none of my own gear. Uh, I had like an outie and that was it. And then so I came out and I was looking for a jumpsuit and range says, I have a jumpsuit you can have and comes out with this bright pink baggy suit. And I was like, Oh my God, I'll just, I'll dye it purple or something. And then, but I'm going to go and see what it's like to jump in. Right. And it created such a stir as I walked through the hangar. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm keeping this pink. And then we added the hat Yep. and I'd walk out and you'd film me and I'd walk out pretending to be very, very camp and say, who's jumping the sim? And sometimes I'd get some like big biker dude or something who would just like, would be like, oh, crestfallen. Like, I've got to jump with this guy. Yep. Yeah. We just have a hoot with that thing there. Yeah, oh, sure. man, I'll, I'll never forget, uh, because I've still got the video, it was one particular jump. I did the interview. You're back in the gear up room, and uh, yeah. you're like, I'm jumping <laughs> with, with a guy by the name of Herb. <laughs> He's a lovely boy. He's a lovely – I think I was filing my nails while I was talking. You like, were. You were yeah. filing your nails. Well, and then cut, cut to the jump. You do a gainer out of the back of the sky van – and we do the, you know, the standard turn left, turn right. And then you do that. I'm so bored leaning on your arm in free fall. <laughs> and Herb is there losing his shit. But throughout the entire video, you never look at that poor fucking guy because we're having so much fun. 
we were just having fun and he was just like a necessary a person to pay the bills yeah yeah he was just an absolute prop which was so funny and you also the one other one that you did with that pink jumpsuit that still cracks me up wasn't even on the jump it was just in the landing area you had the flamingo hat and by flamingo <laughs> hat i mean it was a flamingo it was a fucking bird and you were wearing the pink jumpsuit and we were all filming you as you walked around the loading area like a flamingo yeah, I remember that now. That was that were good times. Oh my god, dude! I and I've said it a thousand times on the podcast. I look back, and um, when it's all said and done, and I'm old and gray, all my favorite memories of skydiving are going to end up being from Cross Keys. Yeah, for sure, they really are. They really are. Right. As I'm as I'm on heavy pain medication to solve all the problems that I've caused myself. And don't forget the uh, the impromptu uh, film festival where it was pissing down with rain and we decided to go and make, what do you call it, the Princess Diaries? The Princess Diaries, yeah. And you I dressed don't... up. Did you have a tutu on or something? No, I was in, in uh, Kim Worthington's hot pants and fishnet stockings. Oh, okay. And I was so... acting as your Yeah, and you I were my some... bodyguard. Do you remember we went to uh, we went to Starbucks and then we went to the clothing store? And yeah. then... It was completely step aside, please step aside. And everyone's like, who the fuck is this person? Yeah. Oh, it was so completely random. And then for some reason at the end of it, because you had shown that you did a great Gollum impression, the end of the video is you and your underwear wrapped around a telephone pole doing a Gollum oh, impression. Oh, yeah. That stemmed from uh, another night. Oh God. What a mess that was. That was when uh, young Jasper was born. Yes. And yes. I was found, let's just say I was uh, a little out of it and um, I'd wandered off and a bunch of you had tied helium balloons to my clothes so they could see when I was leaving. But then I managed to get rid of them and then someone found me um, in a neighbor's yard in a fetal position around a uh, around a telephone pole. Yeah. And then when I walked into the drop zone the next day, Jacko said, Poaga! And then that was my nickname. Yeah, yeah. Well, that and, and uh, I think we called you Tripod for a while, but that was because of another party that we had. <laughs> we won't go into that. <laughs> <laughs> let, let, suffice it to say that uh, when both of us are officially retired, there's going to be a second episode to these podcasts. Okay, where we, sounds good. Where we can tell all the all the, the the stories, but that's for another day. That sounds good, and then like we'll, I, we'll delve deeper into things then. I have a I have another future guest from the Cross Keys days that actually desperately wants to come on and and have plenty of fun on the podcast, but he needs to wait for a, a more opportune time to share everything. So that one, and I'll I'll tell you off the podcast who that is, but it'll it'll be a proper good episode when it's time. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So for um, as we wrap up, tell people if they want to come out and be your. 10,286th tandem passenger um, or they want to just come shake your hand, give you a high five or, or try and talk you into a fun jump. Where do they go? How do they find you? Social media? What's the drop zone? Give me the info. Uh, drop zone specific coast skydiving and Brownfield. It's a tandem only um, operation out of Cessna 206 is there. Um, I actually don't have any gear anymore to be able to do a fun jump, but uh, if I was going to do that, I'd be uh, skydive San Diego. Still got some friends there uh, working. So social media, I'm on Facebook and X. 
as Twitter is now called, which I just discovered recently. That's probably my favorite social media site these days. Is it really? Yeah. I don't have a Twitter. That's the one I don't. Oh, I don't have so a Twitter good. and I don't have a TikTok. No, no, I've never go TikTok, but uh, Twitter's worth getting or X as it's called now. All right. Well, I'll, I'll maybe dip my toe. Okay. Sim, I'll tell you what, man, it was a pleasure way back in 2004. It's just as much of a pleasure now. We got to not be such strangers. I know we keep up uh, um, kind of uh, regularly, but we got to do this again soon. Yeah, it's nice seeing your face again. Absolutely. Uh, Man, I love you to death. It's, it's, It's great seeing you doing well. I'm really, really happy for you. Thanks. Great to see you too, brother. Sim, you take care. All right. Bye. See ya. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast brought to you as always by, well, wait, not as always, actually. Brought to you now by Gyro. Formerly known as NZ Aerosports, you'll head to gyro.com for their next level line of canopies. By Pussfoot, the Extreme Sports Collective. Head over to pussfoot.com to check it out. By Summit Parachute Systems, Check out SummitParachuteSystems.com to talk to Jarrett Martin and the gang about kick-ass pilot rigs, rigging courses, and more. By FlyAway Indoor Skydiving. Go to FlyAwayTN.com and check out all the cutting-edge stuff to come. By Pure Spectrum CBD. Head to PureSpectrumCBD.com to check out their wide range of CBD products. And as for us, head to the LunaticFringePodcast.com to listen to any of the hundreds of episodes currently available. Hit the link for our YouTube channel, pick up your copy of the Lunatic Fringe book or The Accidental Stripper, and get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.